So in this third installment of Repeats History, we're going to be dealing with a topic that is a little more serious than uh, our previous discussions on, on ancient Egyptian history. Reichstag fire really served to launch the Nazis into power. We're going to go over a brief history of that fire and the impact it had on the development of the Nazi party in Germany. And as a firefighter myself, I, I do have some understanding of the behavior of fire as a chemical process. So we're going to look at the fire not only from a historical perspective, from primary sources, but also from the perspective of modern fire science, and attempt to compare what modern science would have to say about the progression of the fire with what historical sources had to say about the fire, and the conclusions of researchers as far into uh, the development the 20th century and the 21st century, uh, right up really until the the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. So I think a lot of people are going to find this interesting. Uh, my conclusions are, are similar to uh, Christopher Hetz, and uh, I guess we'll get going here. The most violent and catastrophically destructive and murderous regime in world history was really sparked by arson. On a really cold night of February 27, 1933, the German Reichstag building in the heart of Berlin erupted in flames. Within 20 minutes, a fire had grown from small, disconnected, smoldering fires into an inferno of literally historic proportions. Inside, there was a nearly blind Dutchman, only 24 years old. The guy's name was Marianus van der Lubbe. He waded through the dark complex of corridors and rooms with such an efficiency that he would have had to really understand the layout. And it was in these rooms, including the session chamber, that he claimed after capture to have set 22 small fires that eventually consumed the contents of the entire Reichstag with such a ferocity that the copula itself, this big glass dome on top, it exploded from the buildup of pressure and heat. So captured in semi-nakedness, van der Lubbe was pretty conveniently found to have on his person a communist piece of literature and a Dutch passport, which is really all the newly elected Nazi party authorities needed to accuse him of using the fire as a signal to initiate a general uprising of communists in Germany. By January the following year, he'd be dead. They chopped his head off, decapitated by guillotine. And Germany would have as its sole authority the Nazi party and its leader, Adolf Hitler. This, of course, is the official story of the fire and its fallout, which as late as 1993, historian Ian Kershaw claimed to be one in which there was little need for debate. 
the evidence, I think, at least from the perspective of modern fire science, really strongly suggests otherwise. I have to admit that wading into the quagmire that's the study of the Reichstag fire is pretty intimidating and, and it's a daunting task. Already within the first few hours of the fire, a cause had already been established in the minds of, of a lot of people. Uh, Sefton Dahlmer was a, a Jewish-British journalist working at the time in Berlin for the British Daily Express, and he had immediate access to the fire and the leaders of the Nazi party. He reported that Hitler friendedly claimed to his vice-chancellor, uh, Franz von Papen, quote, this is a God-given signal. If this fire, as I believe, is the work of the communists, then we must crush out this murderous pest with an iron fist, unquote. Rudolf Diels, who was then the head of the Prussian political police, which is kind of an early manifestation of the Gestapo. And remember that name, Rudolf Diels, because it's a guy that we're going to be returning to quite often as we go through this. But he had access as head of the uh, secret political police. He had access to the Reichstag in its early phases of, of the fire, and he witnessed an exchange between Goering and Hitler as he entered the burning Reichstag. He happened to record it in his memoirs as well. And he writes, quote, When I entered, Goering strode forward to meet me. His voice ranged with all the fateful emotions of that dramatic hour. Goering said, This is the beginning of the communist uprising. Now they are going to strike. Not a moment must be lost. Goering was unable to continue. Hitler turned to the assemblage. Now I saw his face was fuming red from excitement and from the heat which had accumulated under the dome. As if he was going to burst, he screamed in utterly uncontrolled manner, such as I have never witnessed in him. Now there must be no mercy. Whoever gets in our way will be cut down. The German people will not put up with leniency. Every communist functionary will be shot wherever we find him. The communist deputies must be hanged this very night. Everyone in alliance with the communists is to be arrested. We are not going to spare the Social Democrats and members of the Reichsbanner either. So you can see how, from the very beginning, there's people involved very high up the chain of command who had already said in their mind who was to blame for the fire. Two days later, British communist newspapers such as the Daily Worker were publishing inflammatory counterclaims that it had been the Nazis themselves who had started the fire, with headlines like, Nazis burned down the German parliament. The subsequent 80 years have not been less intense with super highly charged, politically fueled debate, negation, claims, and contradictions. What has seen little review, though, is the science of the fire itself within the context of the night's timeline, the personalities present, witness accounts, and the little available forensic evidence coming from the investigation. The night of February 27th, 1933 in Berlin was clear-skied. The dark air was crisp, minus 6 degrees Celsius, buffered by a mild easterly wind. By 8 p.m., the German Chancellor, Adolf Hitler, was finally sitting down to dinner with Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels at the latter's residence. 
Inside the Reichstag, not far away, at about 8.30 p.m., was Rudolf Schultz. And he was the watchman responsible for making rounds during the night until he was relieved at about 10 p.m. He began his inspection of the building 20 minutes earlier, where it was his job to make his way through the Reichstag and turn off any lights that might have been left on, or close any doors that were left open. So, at about this time, he was just entering the session chamber with its large glass dome copula, under which the German parliament met to debate. He noticed nothing out of the order, and continued on his rounds. By 8.38, he had finished his rounds and was met by the chairman of the Communist Party, Ernst Togler, from whom he was given keys. It wasn't odd for Togler to be working late, as the Reichstag had been really for the members of uh, this communist group, really one of the last safe havens in which they could go about their work in Germany. 20 minutes later at about 9.03 p.m., so this is how detailed we have the uh, timeline or chronology of the events that night. So at 9.03 p.m., a theology student named Hans Floder was returning home after studying at the State Library on the Unter den Linden. Uh, I'm probably going to be mispronouncing some German as we go on here, but the Unter den Linden is a street. So as he was walking past the Reichstag's uh, southwestern corner, he alerted, he were, sorry, he was alerted to the sound of breaking glass. At first he thought that this was some kind of careless custodian. That's actually how he uh, records it in his testimony. It was a quote-unquote careless custodian. So he continued on his way, only to be alerted by the sound a second time. So this kind of got his attention, and, and now he took a look at the Reichstag for the source and noticed that on the first floor balcony, under a window, a man with a, quote, burning object in his hand, unquote. At roughly the same time, Werner Thaler, who was a 21-year-old typesetter at the Nazi party paper Volksscher Bobachter, again, my German's non-existent, so. So Werner Thaler also heard the breaking glass and remembered seeing, quote, two men whom I can't describe, climb in the window that is directly to the right of the main entrance." Unquote. As historian Benjamin Hett records, Thaler was later unable to recall if he had seen two people entering the Reichstag, or if it had only been one. For the remainder of the count of the early stages of the Reichstag fire, our only witnesses are those serving in the police or the fire services. So it's important to consider the impact that stressful events or conditions have on the formation and retention of new memories. In 2010, a study on memory formation under stress was published in the journal Neuroscience and Behavioral Reviews by Dr. Lars Schwab of the University of Rockstock. He writes, quote, depending on the timing of the stress exposure facilitating and impairing effects of stress are reported on how much is learned and remembered. Beyond such stress-induced changes, in the quantity of memory, recent research suggests that stress also affects the contribution of multiple memory systems' performance. Under stress, rigid habit memory gets favored over more flexible cognitive memory. Thus, stress has an impact on the way we learn and remember and the quality of memory. This shift 
between different behavioral strategies on environmental demands may facilitate adaptive responses. So with that above quote in mind, consider as the event continues to unfold the various contributors of stress and its resulting impact on the veracity of memory the situation is presenting to the first responders. Not only is the scene one which danger to life is inherent, but also the political context of the period, as leaders of growing significance continue to arrive. So Thaler and Floater, those are our two earliest witnesses, at least civilian witnesses. The individual that they ran to, to to report what they had heard was a police sergeant stationed near the front of the Reichstag. This officer's name was Karl Buert, and he was first alerted by who was nearly manic at that point, uh, Floater. He was excited to such a degree that his report was not making any sense at all to the sergeant. He came up and thumped him in the back to express how urgent this was. So with it finally sinking in how important the event was, Floater figured, okay, I've kind of done my duty and I'm going to go home. So according to historian Fritz Tobias, and this is a guy, Fritz Tobias is, is a linchpin to the investigation of the Reichstag fire. So that's going to be a name we're going to come across a lot. Okay, so uh, Fritz Tobias is just trying to remember that guy. So according to Fritz Tobias, it was then that Floater cared to look at his watch and it read 9.05 p.m. By 9.10, Thaler had also found Buert and an unknown companion who were standing outside the Reichstag watching in awe as this figure with a flaming torch dashed from window to window. And he, he records, quote, We saw that the next window to the right was brightly lit by fire that was already burning inside the building. After about two minutes, we saw the light of two torches in the rooms directly under the broken window, unquote. The police sergeant fired around at the intruder. Of course, Thaler was the one who told him to do so, and he missed. But this sent the arson deeper into the building where he was no longer visible. After the shot, and this is a quote, after the shot, the men must have moved further inside the building. And notice he said men. It was now 9.18 p.m., and the first members of the Berlin Fire Department were arriving on the scene. Thaler, at this point, didn't think there was much more he could do, so he too went home. As he was leaving, he glanced back over his shoulder for one last view of the Reichstag and, quote, noticed that the copula of the Reichstag was brightly lit. I ran back to the fireman and told him that the interior of the building was also burning, unquote. So I remember this time, 918, the copula, which is above the session chamber, is, according to one of the earliest witnesses, already fully involved. So Thaler's eyewitness testimony is important at this stage because, like I said, his reference to seeing the glow of the fire through the copula's glass dome meant that by 918, the fire had seen significant growth since its incipient stages, and it contributes to the knowledge that the fire had been set or spread to the session chamber of the Reichstag. A fire's pattern of growth and its subsequent behavior, it's not random. 
It might look so uh, from the outside, but fire is actually very predictable. And an entire science has been founded based on the principles in the fire service. Nothing more really than a chemical reaction. A fire requires three key ingredients making up what's called the fire triangle. So these are fuel, heat, and oxygen. And then a chain reaction that must occur between them, right? Remove any one of these ingredients and combustion stops. So at all stages of combustion, and flames aren't necessary, right, for combustion to take place, all three of these phases, or sorry, all three of these contributors to the triangle have to be present. A fire grows through four stages. Each stage is progressive, but a fire might not reach each subsequent stage. So these are, from the beginning, the incipient stage, the growth stage, fully developed stage, and then a decaying stage. In the incipient stage, ignition has just occurred and it's the period in which like the fire progression is most easily stopped. Oxygen, fuel, and heat combine in a chain reaction producing the chemical reaction known as fire. The growth stage is the shortest period of the fire's growth, but it's also the most dangerous. A number of contributors, sorry, a number of factors contribute to uh, the speed at which a fire grows, including the available fuel load, the available oxygen, the type of materials being consumed by combustion, and the three-dimensional shape of the room. Like that, that's a really important one a lot of people tend to not consider. As heat begins to grow, smoke, which is the product of incomplete combustion, will rise to the ceiling as warm gases begin to pool. So these gases begin to superheat themselves and a layer of, a layer, I guess, of a, well, a thermal layering occurs where cooler air exists in the bottom layers and hotter air in the top layers. As the fire continues to grow, the hotter layers begin a downward progression and with it, the smoke will drop lower and lower until the room reaches what we call thermal equilibrium. This is the most dramatic, pivotal stage of a fire. And with few other more rare conditions, it is absolutely the most dangerous. At this stage, gases in the room have reached their ignition temperature and the room will what we call flash over. Everything, including the air itself, ignites at this stage with temperatures in excess of 1,100 degrees Celsius. This is the fully involved stage. A fire's decay stage begins with the available fuel, heat, or oxygen begins to, to decrease. This is the longest stage of a fire and it presents unique, <laughs> sorry, unique dangers itself. If, for example, oxygen in the room decreases to a point where combustion is no longer chemically possible, but residual heat exists with a potential fuel source, then the introduction of oxygen by, say, opening a window or a door results in a catastrophic and explosive scenario known as backdraft. So it's not, you know, like the movie. It doesn't occur like that. It's, it's you have all the phases of a fire or combustion, let me just say, uh, necessary except for oxygen. And when you introduce that oxygen, you'll get 
explosion. In all four stages of fire, the fire triangle must be present, but its changing relationship to other portions of the triangle may contribute to the transition of the stage of the fire. A decline in available oxygen, for example, and fuel during the uh, fully developed stage may uh, force a fire into a decayed stage. Consequently, the reintroduction of these components um, may reinitiate the whole process. So with only a rudimentary understanding of the way fire behaves, we can kind of glean from Thaler's observation a working basic model of what was occurring inside the session chamber by 9.18 p.m. A copula that was, quote, so brightly lit, unquote, that it could be seen from the street in front of the Reichstag suggests that by 9.18, the fire was consuming significant quantities of fuel sources in a, in, a manner, in a manner that was also producing very little smoke since it was the glass dome uh, through which the, uh, the fire was being observed and it was still intact. Had the fire been like of a, of a low temperature resulting in an incomplete combustion of synthetic fuels like curtains, cushions, uh, you know, that sort of thing, the resulting smoke would have been exceptionally dark and it would have obscured the view of the fire through the dome in which all the smoke would be now accumulating. Like It's a perfect, perfect collection point for all that smoke. And the color of smoke is indicative of how the fire is burning and what's being burnt as well. Like I said, there's a whole science behind fire and reading smoke. You know, type in reading smoke into YouTube and watch what you come up with. It's, it's a really cool uh, physics-based understanding of, of how a fire operates. It's, it's really interesting. So at the time of Thaler's observations, Shortly following Bort's shaky attempt to bring down the suspected arson, you know, by firing off those shots, the first engines of the fire department were arriving, and members of the uh, Berlin police force were starting to make entry into the burning building. Police Lieutenant Emile Letet, it probably sounds more French than it should, but that's my own reading, L-A-T-E-I-T, he was in command of the uh, Brandenburg police station on the night of the fire. So he took Constable Laskit and they made their way by car to the Reichstag and was joined there by another police officer uh, by the name of Herman Poschel. So by 9.20 now, these three men, along with House Inspector Skranowitz, another important name, who had the keys, made entry to the building. Their first observation was the smell of smoke, and they claimed to have witnessed several curtains on fire outside the session chamber. Remember, this is 920, okay? Two minutes after witnesses reported seeing the fire inside the glass copula. Two minutes after that, at 922, they entered the session chamber where they claimed it was entirely, quote, softly lit by a steady, continuous sheet of flame over the tribune. The effect was that of a brightly illuminated church organ, unquote. 
They then moved further into the session chamber and made note there that, quote, there were flames in the stenographer's well below before retreating. So so the uh, stenographer's well was kind of uh, recessed from, from the uh, floor where they were standing, making these observations. He had noticed, these guys in the session chamber had noticed up to 25 small fist-sized fires, so the size of your hand, spread about the room as he exited, giving off what he reported to be, quote, a lot of smoke, unquote. Now it was Skranowitz's turn to enter the chamber. And uh, Fritz Tobias, remember that historian, I said we'll have to remember his name because he, he really dominated the discourse of the uh, Reichstag fire from, I'd say, 1940 or yeah late 40s, easily into the 1980s. So Skranowitz now entered the chamber and Fritz Tobias records from his personal library of interviews with members uh, who had witnessed the fire. Quote, A single glance showed him that curtains behind the speaker's chair had caught fire, but that the paneling was still untouched. On the first three rows of deputies' benches, Skrenowitz counted some 20 to 25 small fires, each about 18 inches wide and all of roughly the same shape. In addition, the speaker's chair and the orator's table were ablaze, and so were the curtains of the stenographer's well. Here, the flames, however, were flickering and sputtering violently. Unquote. At 9.24, Fire Officer Weldmar Klotz made entry into the session chamber, and he was the first member of the fire, fire department to do this. It's important here to contrast the following report of Klotz who, with those who had only moments earlier been in the session chamber. So those constables and the house inspector, Skranowitz, reported accounts of the fire that largely agree with each other, right? And that was at 9.22. And it was 9.24, two minutes later, again, that Klotz makes his observations. So they were each to witness the fire during the same period of time and make no reference really to building heat. Exceptionally smoky conditions were not really reported and massive amounts of flames as one would expect with, with fire nearing a flashover, remember that term that we discussed earlier? That wasn't reported either. And this is at 924. In a room the size of the Reichstag session chamber, their accounts would be expected as significant fuel load would be required to bring a room of that size up to the required temperatures that would force, say, the oak paneling. Uh, you know, there was tons of that in the session chamber to uh, uh, pyrolyze. And I'm going to go over that term in a little bit, but contrary to popular opinion, Solid objects, they actually don't burn. Neither does liquid, for that matter. But as temperatures uh, in a defined space increase, there's a chemical reaction that takes place within the fuel itself. With wood, especially like a dense wood like oak, these processes take a lot longer than materials with a, a greater surface to mass ratio like dust or, or gases, liquids, or 
paper. Paralysis is the releasing of flammable vapors and gases that are required for combustion. If we focus on the ignition sequence of, say, wood, uh, a very predictable pattern emerges. Heat would build to, say, less than 200 degrees Celsius. I'm going to be dealing with Celsius here. And at that point, moisture is going to be released from the wood, and it's going to dehydrate that wood. At this time, uh, combustible and non-combustible materials are released from the fuel, this being wood. But since temperatures are still kind of low, the temperatures required to uh, ignite them has not yet been reached. But between 200 and 280 degrees Celsius, the majority of the moisture in, in that wood would have evaporated and the wood be, would begin to char. So this is a chemical reaction taking place. Since the water vapor is now releasing only at minimal levels, carbon monoxide is now the primary compound of off-gassing from this wood. Temperatures at this point are still kind of too low for ignition at around 280 degrees. Well, actually, at about 280 to 500 degrees Celsius, pyrolysis is initiated. And this is when combustible compounds are abundantly released as temperatures are now at a high enough level where ignition takes place. There's, again, you might want to, I'll post links to videos on YouTube of paralysis. You can actually see an off-gassing of, of whatever is burning. And it's this off-gassing itself that, that ignites. So it's not the, uh, the wood that's burning. It's the vapors from the wood which are burning and then the wood is being converted into say charcoal through this chemical reaction. So like I said, it's not the wood that burns but gas is released from the fuel, say wood in, in this example, in an environment where temperatures are high enough to first release them, then to ignite them. At temperatures higher than 500 degrees, the fire is free burning and the wood is being quickly converted into uh, the gases that are necessary for combustion to take place. So, since the Reichstag fire was most certainly a fuel-controlled fire, and there's different types that, uh, different types or different mm, scenarios that uh, a fire would be uh, controlled and say a fuel-controlled fire is a fire that uh, its growth is dependent upon the available uh, fuels. And then there's, say, a ventilation-controlled fire, where a fire is limited or um, its growth is uh, um, dictated by the amount of oxygen uh, available to complete that fire triangle. So the Reichstag fire was pretty certainly a fuel-controlled fire. It was, it was a huge building, and so there wouldn't, there wouldn't have been uh, ventilation issues. So the available fuel was the primary factor controlling its incipient to its growth stages versus a self-limiting factor like ventilation. So let me briefly consider here, briefly go over the factors um, influencing the development of a fuel-controlled fire. Okay? According to Ed Harton, who's the holder of a member-grade uh, in the uh, Institution of Fire Engineers and was a fire chief or designated a, a fire chief officer by the Commission on Professional Credentialing. 
He says once combustion has begun, there's six characteristics of, of available fuel load that dictate further development of the fire. So very briefly, these are uh, mass and surface area. So the greater the surface area in relation to its overall mass, the easier for the fuel to reach its ignition temperature. The chemical content, and this is what, what, it, what a fuel is chemically comprised of. So for example, many hydrocarbon synthetic materials radiate heat once undergoing combustion that can double that of a uh, cellulose-based uh, material like wood. Fuel load. This is the total potential heat release of a given area calculated for the materials or potential fuels present. So if you have a room filled with paper, its fuel load will be, say, X, and a, a room filled with uh, wood, its fuel load would be Y, right? So which one of those potential fuel loads, you know, would present greater dangers? Or it, The fuel load is, is a factor. Fuel moisture. So consider the above uh, uh, or earlier described first stage of paralysis where water vapor is being released from wood at around 200 degrees Celsius. This water vapor, while it's warm enough to exist uh, in a gas state, it still has a cooling effect on the fire itself, thus slowing the process of combustion because heat is one of those uh, three component members of the fire triangle. Orientation is also important to consider, especially for the Reichstag fire. So it relates to the correlation of heat transfer in relation to its presented surface angle or position. So for example, ceiling panels are generally exposed to greater temperatures through convection and radiation than flooring, which is not likely to be exposed to significant temperatures due to, convec or due to convection. And the last one, continuity. So how continuous are the sources of fuel in three dimensions? Heat is transferred through convection, radiation, and conduction. If fuel sources are staged closer together or sequentially through the process of heat transfer, a fire is going to grow more rapidly. So with all this in mind, let us uh, continue for a little bit with the timeline of the fire. Recall that at 920 to 922, three men, okay, Skranowitz, Latate, and Laskit, who I'm mispronouncing, I am 100% sure. So let me just spell this uh, guy's last name. L-O-S-I-G-K-E-I-T. Lasikit? Uh, I'm not sure. But they all entered the uh, burning session chamber. Small fires were noted throughout the room, with the last guy reporting a soft glow, while uh, the house inspector Skranowitz reported seeing that curtains behind the stenographer's well work, uh, quote, flickering and sputtering violently, remember? but otherwise only recalling 25 scattered fires about 18 inches wide and they're all roughly of the same shape. The fire chief, Klotz, remember, was, was the next individual to make entry into the burning session chamber. They actually passed each other. So Lete passed Klotz as he was making his way out and Klotz was making his way in. And he actually shouted a warning to him, arson, it's burning everywhere. And that's, you know, as, as Latate was running back out, uh, out of the, uh, the Reichstag, back to his post at the Brandenburg, uh, the Brandenburg Gate. 
So when the alarm, alarm, when the alarm was initially raised, the fire department was under the impression that the fire was isolated to the restaurant of the Reichstag. So it was here that the first arriving companies focused their, their energies. They threw up a ladder uh, on the south side of the building where senior fire chief uh, Emil Poole and his men, they broke a window. Normally, I mean, nowadays, you, you only break a window if you really understand the mechanics involved in the fire because that introduces all that oxygen. You can dramatically change the development of the fire. But anyway, they broke a window. Uh, but since, a, I guess, a window had already been broken by the arson, to, you know, to get into the building, it, I guess it posed no risk for, for further uh, ventilating the room. So they broke this window to gain access. Simultaneously, clots entered the session chamber in an effort to assess uh, the restaurant from the inside via the corridors on the eastern side of the room, the eastern side of the session chamber. It was at 9.24, two minutes after House Skranowitz, or House Inspector Skranowitz and the other three men had observed conditions inside. Opening the door, Klotz was, quote, hit by an absolutely extraordinary heat, unquote. And in addition to the heat, there was smoke so thick that according to uh, Christopher Hett's uh, translation of the report from the Berlin Fire Brigade, and this was, I think, only published in the Berlin Fire Brigade's uh, personal records, so it, it's not widely accessible. But uh, it, it wrote, quote, he could not make out the furnishings or indeed any flames, although he could see the glow of them coming from one of the balconies, unquote. So most notable here is Klotz's opinion as an experienced fire chief that, quote, since in such a large room it would take a long time for flames to consume all the available oxygen and then produce so much smoke, he thought that the fires must have been burning for at least half an hour, unquote. These are in the records of the, the Berlin Fire Department. Two minutes, okay, two minutes. Isolated fires about 18 inches in size on various cushions and desks generating light smoke with some sputtering fires on two or three curtains progressed to a, quote, absolutely extraordinary heat and smoke so thick visibility was restricted to such a degree that furnishings could not be seen. All within two minutes in a chamber room large enough to sit over a hundred people. So with an understanding of how fire behaves based on what I earlier described, can you figure that out? Is it possible for fire to develop through those phases in two minutes with the temperatures necessary for those transitions to occur? while at the same time allowing people to enter the session chamber to observe it? Okay, we're going to come back to, to that point. So within the last 50 years, there's been advances in building design and, and changes in materials used to construct homes and offices that have underwent really dramatic cost-saving changes. This is hugely beneficial to homeowners and in building companies, but the synthetic nature of these changes have put firefighters at tremendously increased risk, especially during the initial stages of fire growth. 
With growing concern over these risks, in 2008, the National Institute for Standards and Testing conducted a study in which fire growth was measured in two 10 by 10 by 10 rooms. Okay. The first room contained modern synthetic materials and, and lightweight building construction, and the other room contained what we refer to as legacy construction and furniture. So it's, it's typical of homes 40 years ago or more. A single fire was set and it was recorded under optimal conditions for fire growth in both rooms. The room containing new synthetic materials, comparable essentially to frozen gasoline, and that's what you know those synthetic materials covering your couch in your living room are. It took only three minutes and 40 seconds to increase in temperature to the stage at which flashover occurred with temperatures exceeding 600 degrees Celsius. The legacy room, however, required 29 minutes and 25 seconds to reach the same temperature before flashover occurred. Okay? Let me repeat that. The new construction materials that are present in homes all over now, from the ignition point until flashover, 3 minutes, 40 seconds. The legacy room, 29 minutes and 25 seconds. Roughly, you know, that 29 minutes is roughly the same amount of time that clots believed that the session chamber had already been burning. So after clots first uh, caught sight of conditions inside the session chamber, he quickly shut the door and left to grab a hose. You know, that's standard practice. You want to uh, minimize your, your ventilation and, and flow paths in a, in a building. Upon his return at 927, he again made entry to the, to the chamber and witnessed now a burst or an explosion, watching, quote, the fire visibly spread like lightning across the whole room, unquote. And it, man, to me, when I, when I hear a firefighter describe that, I immediately think roll over. I might post some videos at this point uh, just to tie in, and you'll see how rollover uh, interacts uh, with with incomplete combustion as the heat is building, and it's a major indicator as a firefighter you got to get out because flashover is about to occur. So Het, who's the author uh, that I previously uh, mentioned, he he further recorded that. Clot's observation uh, continued that the desks, the benches, and the oak wood paneling were now all ablaze, and the flames were fanned by such powerful drafts that he had to clutch the door really tight to keep it from being, <laughs> sorry, to keep himself from being sucked in. So this thing is pulling in massive amounts of oxygen. That's a huge fire. That's a 927. He was just in there at 924. The glass and the copula exploded, and, and now the fire was unrestrained by its oxygen requirements. It had everything it needed to just go berserk. It would take firefighters another two to three hours to uh, extinguish the blaze. That's actually pretty quick, and another day or so to have it completely cooled. At the same time, Skranowitz, that house inspector, had met up with another police officer named Poschel, and the two of them had set out to find what they believed were a team of arsonists 
still hidden in the various corridors and, and rooms of the Reichstag. So remember, like, the Reichstag is... I'm assuming people know what the Reichstag building is, but uh, it's essentially the um, German parliament building. It's where the the German uh, elected leaders would, would meet to debate and uh, enact their, their government. So there's tons and tons of rooms and offices and corridors, and then that the session chamber is that main room where where everyone meets. So believing uh, that the arson was still inside, they went they went through the Reichstag building, and when they reached uh, the room known as the Bismarck Room, they suddenly saw in the shadows a form of a man begin to take shape. So they ran at him and grabbed him, and they took note actually of, of how odd he looked because he was dressed only in trousers and he was dramatically sweating from head to toe. So they searched him really quick and very conveniently and inconveniently for, for the quote-unquote arson, he had on him communist literature and a Dutch passport. And in that Dutch passport they found Marianus van der Lubbe. So this uh, Skranowitz guy, the house inspector, he's extremely mad. So he, you know, punches him in the ribs and, and screams at him, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Van der Lubbe's only reply was, protest, protest. But was he protesting his part in the fire or the punch to the rib? By 9.45... The first of the Nazi Party leadership were beginning to arrive at the Reichstag, so it's, you know, it's fully involved and just free burning at this point. Goering was there, uh, and according uh, to the British journalist uh, Sefton Delmer, he, who had arrived actually just uh, shortly before at about quarter to ten, um, as Delmer approached the scene, he was met by an excited policeman who hurriedly reported to him that, quote, they've got, they've got one of them. They've got the man who did it. A man with nothing but his trousers on. He seems to have used his coat and his shirt to start the fire. But there must still be others inside. They're looking for them in there, unquote. From the very, very beginning, there was, from witnesses, this consistent belief that the fire could not have been the product of a single man. And... While the fire still raged, opinions of various plots and conspiracies were, were already beginning to form inside the minds of, of both the Nazi Party leadership and uh, its lower-ranked members, and actually the public at large, both domestic and foreign. Making his way to the entrance of the Reichstag, Delmer, this uh, British journalist, caught sight of a friend, Dr. Alfred Rosenberg, who was then the editor of the Nazi uh, Volkster Bobachter. Remember, I mispronounced that earlier. So according to Rosenberg, sorry, according to Delmer, uh, Rosenberg was uh, Hitler's number one uh, advisor on foreign affairs. And he writes, Delmer writes, quote, I only hope, claimed Rosenberg to Delmer, that this is not the work of our chaps. It's just the sort of damn silly thing some of them might do. So, Rosenberg reported to Delmer, and Delmer wrote the account that Rosenberg was was pretty concerned as a member uh, of the Nazi Party that the fire was, uh, you know, their their child that that they had more than a little something to do with setting the blaze. 
So there was already at this very early stage suspicions going everywhere that the Nazis were, I don't know if they actually believed that the communists had set fire, but they were projecting the idea that the communists had set fire and uh, there was even some Nazi party members who were worried that they had set fire and then, uh, you know, the foreign uh, observers assumed that the Nazis had, but some thought the communists did and the communists assumed the Nazis did, so it was, it's a mess. So it is from Sefton Delmer that we really get our first-hand account of what Adolf Hitler and Goebbels and Hanstangfel, God, i got to be mispronouncing that one. It, <laughs> it's funny when you're reading these names, it, it's never an issue, but when you have to actually pronounce them, Jesus. Okay, so it was Hitler, Goebbels, and Hanstangfel. He records what they were doing at the time of the fire, okay? So Hanstangfel who was trying to sleep off an attack of the flu in a room in a Goering's presidential palace, which was just opposite to the Reichstag. He had been awakened by the fire, I guess by the fire engines, as they arrived. So here's the account that he, quote, looked out of his window, saw the fire, rushed to the telephone and called Gobbles. The Reichstag is on fire! He almost shrieked, tell the Fuhrer! Oh, stop that nonsense, Pootsy. It's not even funny, answered Goebbels. But I'm telling the truth, and I'm not listening to any more of your stale jokes. Now go back to bed. Good night. And Goebbels hung up. The trouble was that just about four days earlier, this merry little prankster, Goebbels, to amuse Hitler, had played a telephone hoax on Hangstoffel. And when he called him with the... Or sorry, when, when Hanstoffel called him... With the Reichstag fire alarm, he thought that he was being hoaxed back. But he called again. Look here, what I'm telling you is the absolute truth. It is your duty to tell the Fuhrer. If you don't, I'll guarantee there'll be trouble. So this somewhat amusing antidote has, or antidote has uh, been used as evidence that Hitler and Goebbels were completely unaware of the fire or its plans. So Delmer continued into the Reichstag after getting there meeting Goring just inside the entrance in this uh, foyer. After a, a formal greeting, which Delmer claimed uh, was his ticket to admission, they, they, I think it was actually Hitler who, who mentioned, uh, it was either Goring or Hitler, but anyway, they continued on a tour of the still-burning Reichstag while Goring briefed Hitler and Goebbels on the cause of the fire, with Delmer listening in. And Delmer continues to record, Without a doubt, this is the work of the communist Herr Chancellor, Goring said. A number of communist deputies were present here in the Reichstag 20 minutes before the fire broke out. We have succeeded in arresting one of the incendiaries. Who is he, Goebbels asked excitedly. Goring turned to face him. We don't know just yet, he said with a thin shark's mouth of his. But we shall squeeze it out of him. Have no fear, doctor. It was then that Hitler launched into a tirade. God grant this be the work of the communists. You are now witnessing the beginning of a great new epoch in German history, Herr Dalmer. This fire is the beginning. You'll see how it's aflame. He swept his hand around. If the communists get hold of Europe and had control of it, but for six months, what am I saying, two months, the whole continent would be aflame like this building. The importance of these quotes from naughty, naughty, Nazi, I guess they're naughty, the importance of the quotes from Nazi leadership as they're still standing there 
in the friggin' Reichstag as it's burning, not even an hour after the capture of Vanderlubi, cannot really be overstated. Within 24 hours of the fire, the Nazi party would pass through legislature um, a law subsequently known as a Reichstag fire decree. And this granted them complete power in Germany. And in order to fulfill their claim, I guess, of, of crushing a, a potential communist uprising, kind of like uh, the Nazi version of the, the Patriot Act, it gave them full authority. So it granted the party, and ultimately Hitler, a near unlimited and total control of all levels of administration, legislature, uh, and basically all governing systems in the country. The decree overrode basic civil rights, freedom of expression, of the press, uh, and allowed arbitrary searches and even seizure of, of property as the Nazis saw fit. In March, the Reichstag Fire Decree, or Reichstag Fire Decree uh, was followed by the Enabling Act, and this set up Hitler as, as Peter uh, Calvacorsi, who's an awesome historian, and I'm <laughs> probably mispronouncing his name too. He called it a one-man legislature. Vanderlube was brought to trial with three individuals of Bulgarian origin who were legitimately tied to the communist movement. One of these men was Ernst Togler, the Communist Party chairman in Germany, a uh, member I mentioned him earlier, who was one of the last to leave the Reichstag before the, uh, the fire. Remember, he, he handed his keys to the watchman uh, in doing so. All three of these guys would be acquitted. Vanderlube would be executed, adamantly maintaining throughout his trial that he alone was responsible for the fire. The acquittal of the Bulgarians represented kind of a problem for the Nazis because in, fa or in failing to prove a wider conspiracy, they kind of laid the foundations of legitimacy for counterclaims regarding the origin of the fire since their investigation um, shifted to prove the theory of van der Lubbe acting alone. All one had to really do was now prove that more than one person was responsible for the fire and to paraphrase Hitler, the whole rotten structure would come crashing down. This this whole construct of, of a communist conspiracy, right? So if if they acquitted those other three Bulgarians, and they're now throwing all their cards on on the notion that Van der Lubbe was acting alone, if you can suggest or point to evidence that uh, suggested that this was an impossibility, their whole case. Uh, kind of falls falls apart so anti-nazis and and far left supporters set about trying to do exactly this uh first with the release of of quote the brown book of the reichstag fire and hitler terror unquote this was the title this was published from france in august of 1933 by willie musenberg's media group and his and of course this is in french uh the uh geez, I just lost my train of thought here. Yeah, the media group uh, is Committee uh, Mondel Contre de la Gare et la Facimile. <laughs> I probably didn't pronounce a single word of that right. But um actually Albert Einstein was a member. And the Brown Book, as it came to be known, it was it was hugely popular and it was extremely successful in convincing the general public 
of a, a wider Nazi involvement in the origin of the Reichstag fire. So the focus of the Brown book wasn't so much on the Reichstag fire itself, but rather on the news of the atrocities being committed by the Nazi party, from, say, executions of political rivals to reports of concentration camps like Dachau. The accounts were later proven to be true, and for many years the material in it proved or provided uh, on the Reichstag fire was looked upon as uh, plausible, plausibly credible. But it it wasn't it wasn't entirely credible, but it had an extreme impact on uh, the general public's understanding of the fire, almost from a propagandistic. Uh, perspective. Arthur uh, Colser compared it to Thomas Paine's Common Sense. I don't know if anyone's, well I'm sure a lot of you uh, Americans listening have, have read Thomas Paine's Common Sense, but it was this, I uh, wouldn't even say it's propaganda, it, it served as a launching pad for a general popular opinion. Now, you can almost, I guess, a modern comparison might be Donald Trump's rhetoric. So this Brown book describes van der Lubbe as a pawn uh, left in the Reichstag by the SA and leadership of the Nazi parties. According to it, Goebbels had come up with the plan using SA commander Ernst Rahm's homosexuality as a link to van der Lubbe, where the pair of them with members of the SA will gain access to the Reichstag through the underground corridor connecting the building uh, to the boiler room beneath uh, Goering's speaker's residence. Fritz Tobias, remember th this is the researcher uh, from the late 40s to 80s, he may have been correct in his claim that the Brown Book exploited people's love of mystery and, and made more out of the connecting passage than was really warranted. But nevertheless, the publication set in motion the widely held belief that the Nazis were in some part to blame for the fire. Shortly following the Night of the, uh, the, uh, Night of the Long Knives, I don't know, I don't think it's necessary for me to go over it, but this was the uh, purging of the uh, SA leadership. Um, so, uh, let me just reset here. So following the Night of the Long Knives in June and July of 1934, and more importantly, the murder of uh, SA leader Karl Ernst, a letter proclaiming itself to be Ernst's last confession started to make the rounds as part of another publication called The White Book. It, it, the White Book was far more detailed, and it was less prone to contradictions than The Brown Book. And the confession letter made excellent use of the trial's testimony and holes in the official story and it pieced together a story that had kind of been floating around in, in either the uh sorry in the other of the reichstag's uh, fires mythology so the confession of karl ernst describes in detail a plot headed by goring to burn down the reichstag and according to the document the confession was only to be released in the event of Ernst's death or upon and with agreement of Ernst, uh, Fiedler and Warren's child. The confession basically, actually it unfolds uh, 
like this. So meeting with Heldorf, Ernst was brought to Goebel's residence where they were informed of the plan's particulars by its brainchild, Goering. So the original plan was, quote, to deliver a shattering blow against Marxism, the worst enemy of the German people, unquote. And it was to have Hitler attacked by two men pretending to be communists and thus providing the Nazis with a justification for a quote-unquote campaign of retribution. This was deemed too risky because it might give the communists the idea to do exactly that and attack Hitler. Uh, so the plan was abandoned. The party was uh, the dinner party. So uh, who are we dealing with here? We got uh, Goebbels, Goering, Heldorf, Ernst. Um, so after that original plan of attacking Hitler was scrapped, um, they were instructed to, to come up with a new plan. And this is where Goring suggested, quote, firing of the palace and, quote, bombing of the Ministry of the Interior, unquote. Goebbels' response was that it would be better to set alight the Reichstag than, quote, stand up as champions of parliamentarianism, unquote. Karl Ernst suggested that the incendiaries make use of the passageway between Goring's residence and the Reichstag, while Goebbels urged them uh, to push the date back from February 25th to the 27th in order to best make use of the media, since the 25th fell on a Sunday, which wouldn't allow time for the papers to print the story. That's typical Goebbels and the, the propaganda machine that he was. So Goring would provide them with a schedule of when watchmen and various members of the government would be making their rounds or leaving their offices and provided them time to practice their movements within this secret passageway in the dark. The fuel also provided by Goring would be a self-igniting uh, phosphorus mixture and quote-unquote a few liters of paraffin. At 9 p.m. Vanderlubbe would make his start half an hour later than Ernst and his gang. So, so Ernst and the SA would already be inside for half an hour. Vanderlubbe was to be left alone in the dark under the belief that he was acting alone. They would enter the session chamber at 8.45 p.m., quote, smearing chairs and tables with the phosphorus mixture and by soaking curtains and chairs in the paraffin, unquote. By 9.05, they were done just as Vanderlubbe was fumbling around in the corridors, and by 9.15, they were back over the walls, expecting the phosphorus mixture to take about 30 minutes for self-ignition. The confession ends with Ernst denying that Hitler had any foreknowledge of the fire, which renders his behavior at the Reichstag recorded by Rudolf Diels and, and Sefton Delmer as a genuine reaction to the blaze. Discussion and debate in the years following the fire has really, honestly, had less to do with the fire itself and more to do with the politics and the personalities involved in its research. Uh, the science is kind of being pushed aside in, in favor of guarding or, or attacking political positions, institutions, newspapers, and even researchers. Primary source material, including testimony from the Leipzig uh, trial and eyewitness accounts 
fell into the hands of the Soviets after the war and really did not become available until the 1990s. English translations are, are either not yet available or incomplete, and up until 2011, uh, surviving testimony collected in the post-war post years had been locked away in the personal libraries of only a few people, but mainly that of Fritz Tobias. The impossibility of even well-respected scholars such as uh, Ian Kershaw, who I mentioned earlier, being experts on all aspects of the war mandates some need for deferral to secondary um, uh, secondary sources and, and a reliance on secondary sources. So even these secondary sources have uh, been largely dominated by Fritz Tobias. And it, it's his research that re not necessarily even research, but uh, his sources and research is the essentially the uh, over relied upon source material for for researchers investigating the fire. So we really come into a crisis of sources when when we're investigating this. So it's easy to see how, for example, Ian Kershaw, who's hugely respected historian of World War II, but it's easy to see how he might. Uh, form an opinion based on the the, uh, the material of Fritz Tobias, and and really, to be honest, it, the oversight of Fritz Tobias, he he has dominated the discussion of the fire, and it's really only since his death in 2011 that discussion of wider involvement in the cause of the fire has slowly begun to emerge, but. To cover the politics of Tobias' position and, and his research is kind of beyond our scope here, but it is kind of relevant to bring forth a piece of evidence added to the discussion by, by Hett's research. Before Tobias was aware of the conclusions Hett was drawing, he allowed him personal access to any single document he asked for from his personal library. And, and this is the monopoly of primary sources that Tobias had. His personal library, all other researchers were handicapped because they didn't have the primary source material that Tobias had locked away in his personal library. So Het asked for the folder containing information relating to deals. Remember deals was the uh, head of the uh, Prussian police, which was like the um, the Prussian state police, which was the earlier forerunner of the Gestapo. And Diels would later become uh, the head of the Gestapo. So Hat asked for the folder containing information related to this guy. Within this folder was found a handwritten letter Diels had submitted to the British uh, delegation at Nuremberg. And it, it stated that regarding the subject of the Reichstag fire, Hans Gesavius had largely gotten it right. Now, Gesavius is uh, not a name that I've, I've mentioned yet. I don't know how, but he and Diels literally hated each other. So this was a bombshell. Gesavius uh, actually had served in the early days of the Gestapo under Diels. So the two had this political personal and professional rivalry. They, they really, really hated each other. The testimony Gesavius gave at Nuremberg and his account uh, of the fire, he actually recorded in, in his later book called To the Bitter End. 
In this, he claims the SA were responsible for the fire, all of whom except one were executed by the Nazis during the Night of the Long Knives. Extremely similar in plot and content to the White Book, Gesavius and now Deals, right, who's saying in this letter that Gesavius had largely gotten it right, but this letter had been hidden away in the personal library of, uh, a friend, or of Tobias. So now we have an extremely similar account to the White Book, uh, Gesavius's account in To the Bitter End, and now Deals' recording that Gesavius had basically gotten it right. They're all claiming that it was none other than Adolf Rahl who was responsible. Who and Adolf Rahl had, had led the group of the SA men who used the above or the uh, previously mentioned phosphorus mixture to set delayed chemical reactions into play. Van der Lubbe's testimony at the Leipzig trial during one of his few moments of lucidity claimed that while he was moving back through the session chamber after lighting a few small fires on the cushions, he noticed that other fires were starting in locations that he hadn't even visited. In, in questioning from November 23rd, 1934, here's a bit of the testimony. I set the fire and it spread by itself. We don't believe you. You set the fire to every desk and every seat, and you can't tell us that. But I never said that I did that. I just set fire to the curtain. And who set fire to the rest? I've said several times, and should have said it before, that the fire was able to spread by itself. Unquote. So this is in the questioning of van der Lubbe. Nearly all accounts of van der Lubbe from people who knew him described him as a really intelligent, uh, if socially underdeveloped, uh, guy. Throughout the trial, van der Lubbe had been sitting in his chair, slumped forward with his face facing the floor, drooling from the mouth and unable to form a basic sentence. But in this short, if even confused moment of clarity, he was mistakenly claiming that the fire had magically spread to disconnected areas of the session chamber. As I've kind of already referenced, such behavior would only take place in temperatures exceeding 600 degrees Celsius, where pyrolysis uh, would be occurring from convection. If this was the case, van der Lubbe would not <laughs> uh, be blindly making his way through the Reichstag. And I say blindly because he was literally blind. His vision had been destroyed uh, from working as a bricklayer. He got dust brick dust in his eyes. So how is someone who's blind and unfamiliar with the Reichstag, the layout, how is this possible for him to have done this alone? So in addition to the report by van der Lubbe of the fire behaving really in ways contrary to the known laws of physics and thermodynamics, Berlin Fire Chief uh, Gemp, so here's a new name, Fire Chief Gemp, he testified that he had seen and smelled gasoline poured on the carpet of the Bismarck Room. The, quote, trail ran from one door to the other, unquote, with, quote, a few stretches of the carpet completely burnt out, unquote. So Gemp, 
being an experienced firefighter and thus aware of the possible risks to other firefighters, uh, depending on the uh, depending on him to identify the liquid, he bent down to smell it and concluded that it was gasoline or benzene. At the trial, his ability to make this identification was actually questioned. Quote, but a trail of gasoline or benzene could be distinguished from water, correct? Unquote. Gemp replied with, quote, the idea that the trail was water was out of the question, unquote. Fire Chief Gemp had three decades of experience as an engineer and firefighter. So the belief that someone of his veteran status could mistake the smell of gasoline in, in the in the context of a working fire is kind of hugely improbable. His testimony was actually not included in reports of the trial by German newspapers. And according to a study conducted in 1970, actually this is, yeah, according to a study in, in, in 1970 by uh, uh, Professor Karl Steffen of the Institute of Thermodynamics at the Technical University of Berlin, 400 and 40 pounds of oak would it be needed for the would it be needed to be freely uh, freely burning for the temperatures necessary for flashover to occur inside the session chamber remember i described what flashover is it's when uh temperatures build to a point in a room or in a confined space where the air itself ignites it's it's total total combustion so, accordingly, the, the development of the fire was, was only possible in the required time frame with the use of accelerants like gasoline. Van der Liebe did not have these accelerants. According to the official story of the fire, Van der Liebe entered the session chamber between 9.16 and 9.18 and left it two minutes later at 9.20. In these two minutes, fire had jumped from curtains to oak desks and paneling through no use of gasoline, no contact with flame, and within seven minutes, temperatures had exceeded 600 degrees Celsius, producing a flashover and the explosion of the glass copula. Once again, without the use of accelerants, this is not possible, according to our understanding of fire behavior, thermodynamics, and the laws of physics. According to Dr. Lothar Weber, uh, who's a professor of chemistry at the University of uh, Bielsfeld, the use of gasoline was, quote, the only way it was possible to get the oak seeding of the Reichstag to burn, unquote. Two final pieces of evidence are, are worthy to talk about here. Among the debris of the burnt-out session chamber, they found large cardboard nameplates for each delegate of the Reichstag. According to Het, who has had the luxury of going over the primary sources uh, himself, remember the so many of them were locked away in the uh, either the personal library of Tobias or um, in in Germany, or, and sometimes even in the uh, uh, archives of the uh, various fire departments. But Het had the luxury of going over these primary sources, including the testimonies. And there was no mention at the trial by van der Lubbe of these nameplates, and neither by any official involved in the, in the investigation. In 1961, Zerpens, 
who was a, a police officer responding to the to the actual fire. He reported that Vander Lube had claimed to him that he had, quote, strewn these nameplates around the uh, session chamber and they had burned nicely, unquote. However, there's, there's two problems here. One is the amount of time between the statement and its record, right? So the statement came out in 1961. And secondly, and perhaps most significantly, is the fact that the nameplates were stored outside the session chamber. They were found inside. In 2005, uh, Peter Shieldhauer of the Fire Laboratory and Alliance uh, Technology Center conducted uh, tests on a piece of cardboard surviving from the fire. His conclusion was that it was only possible to produce the temperature required for paralysis uh, of the oak to begin was, sorry, the <laughs> Let me rephrase it. It was only possible to produce the temperatures required for a paralysis of the oak uh, through the use of an ignition chain, like um, accelerant or kerosene, and then to nameplates, like those, uh, like I just mentioned, and then to the oak chairs. With the materials available to Vanderlube, this was impossible. Finally, the, the second piece of evidence that uh, should be mentioned is we have the affidavit at Nuremberg of the German former chief of general staff, Franz Halder. I'm probably going to go over uh, the Halder um, war diary at some later podcast, but this guy is, is hugely credible. Historians rely massively on his diary to, to uh, flesh out events of the war. So... Like I said, his, his credibility is being well established by historians and his diary is uh, a hugely credible primary source to thousands of researchers. So in his affidavit, Halder claimed that, quote, on the occasion of a lunch of the Fuhrer's birthday in 1943, the people around the Fuhrer turned the conversation to the Reichstag building and its artistic value. I heard with my own ears how Goering broke into conversation and shouted, The only one who really knows about the Reichstag building is I, for I set fire to it. And saying this, he slapped his thigh. Unquote. Goering's odd response was that it was utter nonsense. His, it, this was his response to the Halder uh, affidavit. Well, confusingly claiming at the same time, um, how he disliked the Reichstag from an artistic point of view and how the opera house to which uh, the meetings were diverted after the fire, quote, seemed to me a much more important building than the Reichstag, unquote. This is not really much in the way of a response to an accusation of such importance. You know, I'm, I'm accusing you of setting fire to the Reichstag and basically setting a chain of events in motion that would ultimately lead to World War II. And his response was, that building... It was kind of ugly. I like I like the uh, opera house. That, that doesn't seem like a sound defense to me. So treatment of the fire during both the war and poor or and post-war years by laymen like me and academics like Kershaw or or Hett or I guess Tobias, but anyway, by laymen and academics. Um, has been more similar to a religion than science or academic honesty. 
sides had become entrenched, directing their attention not towards the evidence, but an obsessive defense of their position, often with honestly questionable links to wartime administrations like the Nazi party. That's a whole uh, ball of wax I, I'm not going to unravel or make claims about, but there are researchers involved who have, uh, let's say, dogs in the fight uh, in, in whether or not the Nazis were responsible or not. So one's really only left with the ability to speculate about who started the fire. But I think the evidence strongly suggests that it was most likely not van der Lubbe alone. I hope everyone liked this third installment. I personally found the uh, the Reichstag fire to be hugely interesting and actually really, really enjoyed researching uh, the fire. Um, I'm going to include also some links to uh, books uh, that I would recommend people read if they are interested in this topic. Um, and again, make sure uh, you, you check out the uh, works consulted. I, I like to post a bibliography of each episode just so people who are interested in the topic can uh, use that as a source for for further exploring the topic so like i say i hope everyone found this interesting and i'll see you with the next episode